We are continuing our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Genesis. We do what we call exposition around here, which just means that we try to expose what's in the text little by little. We take our time with it because the Bible is large and it's full of lots of thoughts. It's not important for you to hear what I think about things. It's important for us to hear what God tells us to be true. I have said this to you many times throughout our teaching series through Genesis, but I'm going to say it again today because we need lots of simple reminders. And that is, this book of Genesis was written down a long, long time ago. And so, for probably close to 3,500 years, that's a long time, like a day is a long time for us, But for close to 3,500 years, God's covenant people have been reading this book, have been reading this chapter. If you grew up in church, if you grew up going to Sunday school or had Christian parents, the story that we're going to read today is not going to be unfamiliar to you. But I want us, if possible, by the grace of God's Spirit, to see this with fresh eyes. One of the interesting things that we're finding along the way in the book of Genesis is there's all kinds of human interest stories. Now, one of the things I've been telling you along the way is that this story is about redemption. This is a story of how God made the world, how it fell into sin, but how he promised a redeemer. Like, if you're kind of new to the Christian faith, you may have this idea that that there's this sort of vague notion of this triune God, we call it Trinity, somewhere up in heaven, and they see the mess of what's going on in the canvas of human history. And so one day, the the Father says to the one called the Son, how about if we fix this, and I came up with a really good plan? That's not how this went. The Scriptures teach us that God knew full well that humans would reject Him, that the world would fall apart into human sinfulness, that they would rebel against him. And the scriptures teach us that the Father and the Son made a covenant together. Theological terms, we call this the covenant of redemption. And in this covenant, the Father and the Son made a plan whereby they would rescue some of the rebels. And as we read these stories of human sinfulness in Genesis, God wasn't surprised by this. He made a plan to redeem it. But why is the Bible so long? Like, why didn't it just say, God made a world, it fell into sin, he gave us a savior, and now we can be saved? Why all these human interest stories? Well, I think it's because the Bible ultimately is a very human story. And and our story is a very human story. A story of joy, of sadness, of happiness, and gain, sadness, and loss. Of the heights of relational joy and the depths of relational brokenness. And all these stories are written down to show us what we're really like. And so I think what we find here in the first 24 verses of Genesis chapter 30 are these ideas. Relationships. And I believe that our relationships are crucibles for faith. Now, I just got really nerdy on you and pulled out like a science analogy, so let me explain this to you for those of you who haven't been in school in a long time. 
you have this vague notion of what you did back in chemistry back in the day, but a crucible is some kind of vessel in which you melt things at very high heat to produce a chemical reaction. But the term crucible has taken on more than just this scientific dimension of meaning. It's taken on a more metaphorical dimension of meaning. Now, commonly in English, we tend to look at the word crucible as a test or an arena in which we are tested. And nowhere is that more true for us than our relationships. Our relationships provide for us crucibles where our faith is tested. If it's true, and it is, that God made this world to be a canvas upon which he projects his image, then our relationships are the crucibles in which that's worked out. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Our God is full of characteristics or attributes. He's kind. He's righteous. He's just. He gets angry. He has joy. And we're just scratching the surface with those few examples. But guess what? We're like that. We have joy. We get sad. Sometimes we have periods of time where we're super, super thrilled and happy. There's other times where we're anything but that. And guess where all that gets displayed? All that gets displayed in our relationships. Going further, our God is a gracious God, treating us according to his grace and as his children, not according to our sin. Guess where we get to emulate that? Guess where we get to project that outward? Guess where we get to reflect that to the world around us? Well, it's in our relationships. So as God relates to us on a vertical plane, we relate to one another on a horizontal plane. It's like an axis. Vertically, we experience the grace of God, and then horizontally, we get to live that out. Guess what happens whenever we butt up against one another, though? We find that it's incredibly difficult to be gracious in our marriages, with our kids, with our friends, in our churches. But brothers and sisters, this life is made up of relationships. Unless you're going to become a nun or a monk somewhere and move to a monastery and live behind a wall and eat locusts and drink brackish water, you're going to be in relationships. And guess what? What you believe to be true about God will be proven in the crucibles of your relationships. And so, it is not a small thing for us to once again look into a human interest story. Because in this, we learn a whole lot about ourselves, and I believe also we will learn about God. So in keeping with that, let's read the first 24 verses of Genesis chapter 30. And we'll try to make sense of what Moses wrote down for us here and what God wants us to learn. This is God's word. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Now before we go on, I want you to have eyes to see. To see things like jealousy, irrationality, 
fear, weakness, brokenness, suspicion. Keep your eyes out for these normal human emotions as we read. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. May God bless to us the reading of his word. In these relationships, we find these crucibles of faith being worked out. Moses wrote down these stories quite a bit after they happened, and he wrote them down for Israel, the nation. But it's interesting that now as we read about Jacob, Jacob whose name would become Israel, the nation of Israel saw in their father, Israel, or Jacob, who they were. And that's what happens when we look into the Word. We see ourselves for who we are. Now, if we're being honest, when we look into the Word and see ourselves for who we are, we often don't like what we see. But what God is doing, because He loves us, is He's exposing what's bad and that which is bad that saps our joy because sin ultimately cannot give us joy. He exposes the sin and by his grace shows us a better way. And that's what we will find today in Genesis chapter 30. This is a messed up family. Like this is the classic dysfunctional family. In fact, as you read this story, 
If you think that your family's dysfunctional, and I know a lot of your stories, and I know that some of your families are, this story should make you feel a little bit better about your own family. I mean, like, this is the kind of family that, like, would make Jerry Springer blush. They were messed up. These kind of people made, like, the Jenners and their Kardashians look kind of normal. These people were really screwed up. I mean, think about some of the things that are going on here. You have two sisters, and if you have a sibling, you know how sometimes it's hard to just, like, deal with your own sibling. You have two sisters married to the same guy, and he's not a very good one. He, he lets them play their jealousies off against one another. Each of them has a slave girl, and because they're jealous about having kids, they give their slave girls to him to be sort of slave wives, and then they have kids. I mean, these people are twisted. Leah gets to the point that she's not even having any attention paid to her by her husband, so she gives away some of the plants from like her primary age son to her sister, and then she gets to go have sexual relations with her husband that night, who never spends any time with her. This is messed up. The nation of Israel was able to look back at this story and see extreme sin, extreme problems. Why did God do that? Because they would have extreme problems. And they, for most of their existence, would seek to live independently of God and would find that when they did so, their lives were a disaster. And as we look back today, with eyes to see, we still have relational struggles, don't we? How was your week with your husband or your wife? Some of you would be like, it was awesome. You know, like we spent a lot of time together and we had meals together and we were on the same page in parenting. We didn't have any fights. Like there's plenty of money in the bank account. It was a really peaceful week. Oh, and we went back to the first restaurant we ever went to on our first date. It was perfect. Some of you would be like, I don't want to live with this man anymore. He's insensitive. He's, he's a slob. He doesn't pick up anything. He never pays me any attention. She's disrespectful. She always talks down to me. She has a super sharp tongue, just like her mom. I mean, whatever. Like, some of you, some of you had a really hard week relationally with your spouse. For those of us who have kids that are growing up and getting older and feeling their oats, it was a hard week. It's one thing to change diapers and stay up all night with a kid who won't go to sleep. And that's hard. And frankly, I don't want to go back to that. So more power to those of you going through that. But... But when your kid looks at you with disrespectful eyes and doesn't want to have anything to do with you because they think you're stupid. Or, young person, if your dad wasn't kind to you this week, if your mom didn't pay you any attention and you don't think she understands you anymore, relationships are hard. I know some of you are struggling with friendships right now. I hear things. Friendships are hard. When it really comes down to it, I think sometimes we think that the fabric of our relationships is a lot like chain mail. You know, like the stuff that the knights used to wear in between the crevices of their suit of armor so that people couldn't stab them or shoot arrows at them. Like we think that our relationships are made up of something really strong like that. But I think that's often not the case. Our relationships often feel like they're made up of like spider webs. And they're barely held together. And the slightest wind could just blow it all apart. Why is it like that? Well, I think it's like that in part because we're sinful. And each of us contributes sin to every equation of relationship. But I think there's also something divine going on in that. 
in that notion that our relationships are pretty fragile. God wants us to see that ultimately he's our only hope. And I think we'll see that by the end of our text today. The salvation that God promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the first sin, that a Redeemer would come and make all things new, this kind of salvation that the Redeemer would bring would change everything about us. Not just the way we relate to God, but the way we relate to one another. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. Immediately when they sinned, not only was their vertical relationship broken with God, it affected the horizontal portion of that axis as well. But when Jesus came, he came not just to renew us to God, but renew us to each other. And the grace that Jesus gave us is the grace that we are to learn to extend to one another. So Jesus is making all things new, even our relationships. And when we as rebels have these hearts start beating again because Jesus brings them back to life, those hearts are able not only to respond vertically to God, but should respond horizontally toward one another. What we find here in Jacob's story is a lot of misplaced security, especially for his wives in this text. And misplaced security, left unchecked, inevitably leads to some very dangerous things. First of all, to deep disappointment. Misplaced security left unchecked inevitably leads to deep disappointment. You see this at the beginning of the chapter. Rachel is completely crestfallen, which is a fancy old-fashioned word that none of you say anymore. She's sad. And even more than that, she's angry. Her anger is directed at her sister. Her anger is directed at Jacob. But I think fundamentally the text implies that she's really mad at God. And Jacob kind of brings that out. I spent some time with a pastor friend of mine this week. And there's some things that I've been struggling through in my own heart, just trying to figure them out. This guy knows me well. He's a good friend. And he looked at me with a lot of graciousness and he said, you're mad at God. And he was right. There's some things recently that I've been dealing with that fundamentally have exposed that I'm mad at God about. But to whomever your disappointment or anger is directed, it reveals that often our security is misplaced. Now, here's what I mean by that so that this is clear. If you remember, a couple of chapters ago, Jacob went to Bethel, and there God met him and made promises to him. The same promises that he'd made to Isaac, his father, and the same promises that he'd made to Abraham, his grandfather. And the promises were, I will bless you, and I'll give you lots of stuff. And even more importantly for Jacob, and of course for us, I will bless the whole world through you. And the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is that Jesus the Messiah would come through that family line and eventually save the world, those that would trust him. But Jacob had been given great promises. And it was surprising because Jacob didn't deserve them. Jacob had just deceived his family. Back at home in Canaan, that family was broken too. And Jacob, seemingly by that point, had begun to trust God a bit more. Whether he was converted and came to God in faith, the text isn't super clear. But regardless, he was changing. And here you find in chapter 30, he's been with these women more than seven years by this point. 
He's been living with them for a while. Like, they weren't brand new newlyweds by this point. By this point, a man who should have been walking by faith, and, and by the way, Jacob was probably in his 70s by this point. I mean, he's not some 20-year-old guy who thinks he has the world by the tail. He should have had some wisdom by this point. Even still, he has not taught those who live most closely to him to walk by faith. And as he watched his wives battle against each other in relational jealousy and then disappointment, he should have been pointing them to the Lord. He should have been teaching them what it looked like to have confidence in the one true God. I mean, after all, this is what he had had to learn. Jacob had been a schemer and deceiver his whole life. Jacob had been scrambling his whole life. Jacob had tried to make life work on his own, and again and again and again, because God loved him, not because he was mean, but because God loved him and wanted to do things through him, God kept putting roadblocks in front of Jacob. And Jacob kept getting frustrated more and more. But that's what Bethel was about. It was a chance for Jacob to surrender to God and to say, I've got to stop living independently of you. I can trust you. And all these things that have exposed my insecurities and all the ways that I have run after other things to make myself happy, those haven't worked. So I'm going to trust you. But guess what? He saw this happening with his wives all the time. And unless this guy was just a dullard, like a doofus, and wasn't paying attention, he should have seen it. But clearly, he's not influencing his wives at this point. And guess what happens whenever there's a vacuum of trust? Guess what happens when one does not live with absolute dependence upon the Creator? Guess what? You will be rocked with insecurity. It, it will possess you. If you are not growing in increasing confidence in the one who made you and the one who alone can satisfy you, you will seek for that satisfaction and security in other relationships. You can't help it. Because you're an image bearer, you were made to live in relationship. This may help you understand some things about yourself if you've never thought about this. God made you to live in relationship. It's part of being an image bearer. You can't help it. Now, there's a couple of you that if you could, you would live like hermits, but only a couple of you. The rest of you, you can't live independently of people. God didn't make you like that. But if you are not ultimately finding your satisfaction and security in the one who made you, the one who controls you, and the one who alone can satisfy you, you will have misplaced securities. What did Rachel want? She wanted kids. Why did she want kids? Well, it's natural for a mother to want children. God made you that way. But she also wanted the approval of her husband. She wanted the affections of her husband. Oh, and by the way, the fact that her sister was also married to her husband only exacerbated the problem. Rachel was full of misplaced securities, and guess what happened when that went unchecked? She grew deeply disappointed. But not only this, it led to relational tension. You see this in verse 8 in the way that she names this son. Now, remember what she's done here. She's given her servant to her husband to be another wife so that she can have these adopted children. The first son comes along named Dan, and, and she names him Dan because his name means God has judged me or God has vindicated me. 
What does that mean? It means that before I was, I was something less than my sister because she's having all these kids and I can't. So now God's doing something on my behalf. And then she has this second son named Naphtali, and basically it means wrestlings, and I have overcome my sister. I mean, think about that. Like, she's not celebrating the fact that this child has come. She's just glad she's gotten one over on her sister. She's messed up. Relational tension. As long as I have been a pastor, which is about 10 years now, I have found that there are periods of time in our church, in our assembly, that everything's sort of tranquil and peaceful. But that never seems to last super long. Something eventually happens where relational tension starts to come out. And it's not surprising. It's frustrating. But it's not surprising. Because guess what? I'm a sinner. I will fail you. I will disappoint you as a leader. I will disappoint you as a friend. You're a sinner. You will disappoint each other. This is the way it works. Relational tension is a sad reality in all of our relationships, maybe especially in our churches. Why is that the case? Well, not only because we're sinners, but also, as I sort of hinted at earlier, God's doing something. He's putting us in these crucibles of faith to test what we're really like. We talk a lot about the gospel here, that God is making the world new through Christ. But guess what happens whenever you butt up against another sinner? What you believe about the gospel is proven to be true or not true. We are to be kind like the Creator is kind. But guess what happens whenever you butt up against another sinner? Kindness is hard. We serve a God who is ultimately forgiving. I mean, confoundingly forgiving. The fact that he forgives like he does should, should astound us. And yet, whenever we live in relationships, we find that we have to forgive all the time. And that's really, really hard. But it proves what we say we believe. And what God is doing in putting us in these crucibles of relationships, because they're inevitable, is showing what's inside of us. He's testing us. Rachel and Jacob and Leah and the slave wives and, of course, the kids were brought into this as well. They lived in a, in a state of relational tension. I think that there's also a satanic dimension to this. It might freak some of you out a little bit, but, but, but Satan loves to disrupt our relationships. It gets our attention off of God. And, and as a church, if our church is marked by relational tension... We have no opportunity for mission. We have no opportunity to display what the Creator is like. Brothers and sisters, because I love you, I warn you to be on guard. Watch out for these crucibles of faith. They can be the kind of tests which will increase your joy and transform you. Or they can deeply disappoint you and those around you and the fabric of everything that you believe and trust can come undone. Not only these first two things, but misplaced security, left unchecked, also leads to irrational choices. Look what Rachel did. Rachel gave his, her servant wife to her husband, like, like that was going to make things better. 
And, and Jacob gave into it. If you look back at Genesis chapter 16, guess who else did this? Abraham did this. Now, Jacob didn't have a Bible at this point. Like he wasn't carrying around a scroll in his knapsack. But he'd heard the stories. He, it was his grandfather, after all. How did that work out for Abraham? If you remember the story, really, really horribly. It was Sarah's great idea, and Abraham did not show strength or wisdom, gave in to her, take, took Hagar as his wife, had this guy named Ishmael. Oh, and by the way, that still has ramifications even till today. That's how sin works. The, the ramifications of sin go deep and long. Now, even though Rachel was living this way, even though she had misplaced security, wasn't finding her satisfaction in God, even though Jacob wasn't leading her like he should have, he gave in to her here. He made things worse. I mean, you look at Jacob here and you think, well, it's kind of understandable that Rachel made this decision, but what about Jacob? Didn't he have enough sense to say, well, that's not a good idea. Let's talk this out. He didn't do that. He gave in to her. Oh, and guess what? In verse 9, Leah does the same thing. And he gave in to her too. I mean, it's, it's just like one bad choice after another. There's something about relational insecurity that leads us to the point that we make really irrational choices. We become suspicious. And, and because we're not happy, we begin to scramble, as I said earlier about Jacob. Jacob scrambled because he wanted to be happy. He was always scheming and maneuvering to make himself happy. That's what Rachel's doing here. It's what Leah's doing here. And Jacob was so miserable, he gave in to them. And he started doing it again. Sometimes after we sin, we look back upon the decision to sin, and we say to ourselves, how in the world was I so foolish in the moment to have made such a choice? I, I hope you have that feeling sometimes. But sometimes in the midst of our decisions, we're, we're so irrational because we want so deeply to be happy and we're running away from the true source of happiness that we can't even make wise decisions anymore. And that's what was going on in Jacob's life. But it got worse. So they start having these slave children who are going to be like the adopted children, which is a whole other issue we won't take time to explore today. How would you like to have been one of the slave kids? That's pretty bad, right? So, so there comes this time when Reuben is out picking plants. Um, it was a mandrake or something like that. Most of you probably don't know what that is. But people in the ancient Near East believed that these plants, if they truly were mandrakes, the translation of the original Hebrew is a little spotty, but let's just call them mandrakes. People in the ancient Near East believed that if you partook of this plant, that it would make you more fertile as a woman. Well, that was super attractive to Rachel because what did she want? She wanted kids, and she believed in these wives' tales that if you just ate of this plant, that suddenly that your womb would become very fertile, and if you had sexual relations with your husband at the right time, that you could have kids. So she finds out that Reuben has picked these mandrakes. So she says to her sister, and you wonder, like, what their speaking terms were, right? Like, do you ever have, like, a friend out there that, that you, you like, but things have gotten so tense between you that you don't really know whether you can approach them or not. It's like you come on a Sunday morning and, and like, let's say September, and then you talk and everything's kind of okay. But next time you see each other, 
you can't even really approach each other or look at each other because you know there's just this weird tension and it kind of goes back and forth. Like, I don't know if that's how Rachel and Leah were. Like, like on Tuesdays they were okay, okay, but like on Saturday they couldn't talk to each other. But for whatever reason, they talked this day. And, and Rachel desperately wanted some of these mandrakes so she'd become fertile. But she barters a deal with Leah. And I'll be careful because of young ears. But, but, I mean, think about what she does here. She brokers sexual favors from her husband to her sister. If you read this in Sunday school, you just kind of glossed over that. If you heard that one of your friends did this today, it would be scandalous. It it would be all over Yahoo and Twitter. This is horrible. But somehow Rachel excused this. And, And that leads us to this fourth realization that misplaced security, left unchecked, inevitably leads to excused sin. We just start doing things, whether whether they please God or not, whether we ultimately know that they're bad or not, we do them. And Leah plays along. And once again, Jacob plays along. I mean, this blows our minds. I've been doing counseling long enough, discipleship that uh, I have found that irrational behavior is, is the norm from people. For me, too. I mean, I don't want to excuse myself from this. So, sometimes the things that we do should just really surprise us. I've seen this in relationships a lot, especially in marriages. Um, one of the very first, uh, um, and again, I'll try to be discreet, but one of the very first major marriage blow-ups we had around here was of a sexual nature, and there was unfaithfulness. And um, in this case, the woman was the one who committed the sin. But, but as I dug into the counseling, because whenever this happens, it's going to take a long time to work through this, and by God's grace, he healed the marriage. It was beautiful. But it was very clear that ultimately, even though the husband was not the one who was unfaithful, he drove her to it. Now, be careful how you hear me. She's responsible for a decision. But he was horrible to her. He didn't pay attention to her. He was, he was incredibly egotistical. And God changed him over time, and he became very godly. But, but you, you watched, like right in front of you, this relationship disintegrate, and then irrational, sinful choices become justified. I don't know anything today. As far as I know, all of you are living super righteously and haven't sinned in like two weeks. So I don't know anything. But I know enough to know that it's not unlikely that in a congregation this size, there could be some hidden stuff. And I want to say to you today, not out of anger or frustration or not out of threat, but because I love you, because the elders love you here, if there's something going on, if if you are justifying things, men, women, young people, if you're justifying things, then ultimately you know because it's just because you want to be happy. And, and for whatever reason, God's not making you happy right now. And you're scrambling after happiness and satisfaction, security and all the wrong things. Please just tell us. We will be quick to forgive. We will be quick to, to cover you in grace, to cloak you in mercy. But brothers and sisters, these kinds of things, and sometimes they're subtle and sometimes they're big and overt, they will destroy you. Jacob should have been a much better leader that led his wife, but of course wives, which is a whole other issue, to trusting the one true covenant-keeping God who alone could satisfy them. 
to keep his wives from falling into deep disappointment and relational tension and irrational choices and excused sin. But he didn't do that. Why, again, do we look at these hard stories? Why? So we can see ourselves. Now, you hopefully are not making these same exact decisions, but there's principles to be found here. James speaks of this in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. So we, we look into God's word by faith each week. That's why we gather for corporate worship. And it's not always fun. Now, again, I doubt you have committed these same exact sins recently. But there's principles here. And the crucibles of your relationships, if you are seeking for security in them, God will always withhold that security from you. And he will expose the wickedness and misplaced confidences in you to drive you to him. That's what he does. Not because he's mean, but because he's good. So I say to you again, be careful where you find your securities. And if you see these things coming out of you, it may be a warning sign like a red light going off in your peripheral vision that God is saying to you, find your satisfaction in me. I say to our young people that are here today, do better than your parents. If we could say something to you as young people today, we would say to you, don't make a lot of the same relational mistakes we made. We want you ultimately to treasure Jesus so supremely that your relationships reflect his beauty, his goodness, his love. And as parents, one of the best things that you can do for your children is display in front of them a life of repentance where your relationships are becoming increasingly more centered upon Christ, trusting him, emulating him, honoring him. Because don't you want your sons and daughters to have godly marriages, healthy friendships, they will never do this if they see us with misplaced securities, the idolatry of relationships that God alone was meant to satisfy. That's a lot of bad news. But it doesn't end there. There's a hint at the end that things will get better. And so I say to you that God's promises are unchangeable, sealed by his love. Who was the worst one in this text? It's probably easy to say Rachel. Maybe Rachel made a lot of terrible choices here. Because I'm a husband who realizes the responsibility that God has placed upon me as a leader in my home, I want to say it's Jacob. But regardless, Rachel made a lot of bad choices. What does God do here at the end? He gives her a kid. His name's Joseph. Joseph's name is celebratory, but it also means that Rachel wants more. Eventually she will have more. We'll talk about that in days to come. Who is Joseph? Well, Joseph is the one whose brothers would hate him, partially because he was the favored son and 
partially because he was a cocky jerk. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school hearing that Joseph never sinned, let me disabuse you of that notion. Joseph would be hated by his own brothers. Uh, they were going to kill him, but then they sell him into slavery. I'm foreshadowing a little bit here. Then he'd go to Egypt, find some favor, then fall out of favor, almost lose his life, but then be raised to amazing favor and be put in a position where he could save this covenant family. And by the time the covenant family comes to live in Egypt, and they have to go there because they can't support themselves in Canaan, they'll die. Seventy-odd people come to live in Egypt, and thereby the Messianic family is preserved. Why did God do that? Because he made a promise to Abraham that he'd bless the world through him. Because he made a promise to Noah that he wouldn't destroy the earth the same way again. Because he made a promise to Adam and Eve that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent and make all things new. And if Jacob, Israel's family, died, that couldn't have come to pass. You ever get to the point with your own children where they're just so awful and they won't listen to you that you just scream at them like you've had enough? Like they've been too disrespectful, too messy, too neglectful, and you've just had enough. Now, you know in the midst of the screaming that you're going to have to apologize because it's super sinful. But what if you're God? Like you're looking down at this sort of drama of human history and you say, enough! I'm done with you. I destroyed you in a flood once. That didn't seem to work. How about fire this time? But that's not what he did. You know what he did when Rachel deserved judgment? He gave her a kid. At the height of her sinfulness, he gave her a son. And who was that son? He was the one from a human perspective who would save the family. And if God hadn't given Joseph to the family to save the family, Jesus wouldn't have come and none of us would have been saved. What does God do in the midst of great darkness, great brokenness, horrible sin and rejection of his good grace. He gives us promises. Most of us say we want judgment, righteousness, justice. No, we don't. Most of us want mercy. Mercy's not getting justice. But guess what's even better than mercy? Grace. If mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve, grace is getting a gift when you deserve punishment. When I was a teenager, I've told you guys this story before. When I was a teenager, I was horrible. I mean, like, really, really bad. And I'm not saying that just for, like, illustra illustrative effect. I was horrible. Um, I, was, I was a supreme idolater. And one of the ways that I was a supreme idolater is I was a thief. I, st I was, like, a great thief. Um, and I, I don't say that so that you'll emulate me by any means, especially you young people. I was so bad that I would be an usher in the balcony of our church. We had kind of a large church and a balcony. And I would usher up there because it was more private, and I would steal money out of the offering plate. And, and worse, even worse than that. Well, one time I got caught. I was in a store. I also really liked clothes back then. And so I stole some clothes one time, and the store security guy caught me. And so I had to go to, like, teenage jail, which was, like, his office. And they called my parents over the loudspeaker, and they came in. My dad was a pastor, and he was one of those, like, old-fashioned stern pastors. That was not very fun. Um, and then I had to go to, like, kid court. It wasn't, like, regular court. You had to sit down with some kind of guy in, like, a 
polo and khakis and he just looked at you and told you how much of a reprobate you were and tried to scare you. Um, so I had to go downtown Cincinnati where I grew up and, and they went through this whole rigmarole and whatever. And I deserved far worse. So we came out of, out of this little teenage court hearing, whatever. And we were walking to the car, I'll never forget this, and my dad pulls out his wallet and he handed me a $10 bill. Now he was doing two things in that moment. The first thing he said to me was, he said, I want you to know if you ever need anything, you've got some cash. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Like, you know, when you're 16, 10 bucks is pretty good, right? But then he said, I don't want you to spend it. So that just got kind of confusing to me. And this was the bigger thing he was doing. He was saying to me, um, I, I don't want you to be overcome with greed. And I want you to know that you have everything you need in God and your mom and dad will take care of you. And I've never forgotten that. And that was half my life ago. What was my dad doing for me in that moment? He wasn't giving me justice. He was giving me mercy, but he was giving me more than that. He gave me a gift when I deserved justice. And I'll never forget my dad demonstrating grace to me in that way. That's what Rachel got here. Rachel deserved justice for her horrendous choices, but she got a gift. Paul speaks of this as we should consider in regard to our own salvation. What do we deserve because of our sinfulness? We deserve wrath. We deserve justice. But somebody else took our justice. Jesus did. And he offered us his grace. If you know the story of Paul's conversion, he's on his way to Damascus to go kill some more Christians. But Jesus comes in front of him and arrests his attention and brings him to himself. And Paul never got over that. He understood grace supremely. He says later on toward the end of his life to his protege, Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's life became this demonstrative example of God's amazing, powerful, surprising, confounding, undeserved grace. Just like me and just like you. And Jacob's story and the story of his wives was the same. How do we respond to all this? Well, first of all, we must be purposeful about growing in our security as beloved sons and daughters of God. If you find yourself characterized by relationships that are full of tension and all these other things we've talked about today, it probably is a demonstration that you have to grow in depth and security as a son and daughter of God. And let me just say to you what I mean by that. Jesus was not ashamed to call you a sibling, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2. And because he wasn't ashamed to call himself your brother, he brought you back as a son or a daughter to God. That's where your ultimate security lies. Yes, wives, I want your husbands to love you. 
Yes, husbands, I want your wives to respect you. Yes, young people, I want your parents to be understanding and patient with you and to love you. Yes, I want our friendships to be characterized by grace and kindness and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and sensitivity. But all of that stuff is a pipe dream if our ultimate confidence is not in God as the one who alone can satisfy us. Jesus did that for us. So therefore, you've got to be purposeful in growing. At the risk of sounding sort of elementary here, you have to read your Bible. You can call me a legalist if you want for telling you that, but you've got to read your Bible. And you've got to meditate on it. And you've got to listen to the sermons, and you've got to meditate on them. And you need to go to small group where you can be together with your brothers and sisters and learn from one another. God put us in this corporate dynamic to work this hard stuff out. And if you're not purposeful about growing in your security as a son or daughter, relational harmony will never come. God will withhold it from you because he's good. I encourage you also to avoid wasted energy. If you find your security as a person in Facebook, I promise you, you're going to be an unhappy person. If you wait to see whether or not your friend is going to attend your evited event, and you scramble to check your evite 27 times a day, guess what that reveals about you? That your misplaced energy, which should be directed toward finding your security in God, will always elude you, escape you. Avoid wasted energy. You cannot worry about your relationships until you put your energies into finding your satisfaction in God. And then secondly and lastly, we must treat each other as God treats us. We saw here at the end of this text that God kept his promises to bring redemption, eventually which would come through Joseph. And therefore, this text reminds us that God always, always keeps his promises of grace. And therefore, we can trust him. Whenever we sin, he always forgives. Whenever we crave mercy, though we know we deserve justice, he gives it. He's kind. You've got to learn to treat each other like that. That's hard. But the only way that you can do that is if you are relating to him rightly. So therefore, these two points of application go together. As you know him and experience vertically his grace to you, then, and only then, can you extend it horizontally on that axis to each other. So may God demonstrate to us his goodness in helping us to understand who he is, what he wants to give us as we relate to him, and may that show up on our relationships, these crucibles of faith, as we glorify him, reflecting what he's like, learning to enjoy him, and learning to enjoy each other forever. Let's pray.